following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. We're jumping back into our study uh, of the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, you know, during the uh, Palm Sunday service, I had mentioned how the timing worked out so great that we were entering into the Passion Week story right at the time of Lent uh, and Easter. Um, But the truth is, the pace we go at, uh, we're not going to get through the rest of the Gospel for some months ahead. And so uh, we still have a a good amount to go before we complete this Gospel of Luke. And so we get to this passage in Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. And the title of the message this morning is God and Caesar. So we want to take a look at this text as we see what God has to say to us about our relationship with earthly authorities and governments. And it reads... The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at the very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. And show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. God, this is our desire as we gather as your people each week, is that your word would open our eyes to see the world under the light of your truth. And that out of that understanding, that we would respond in obedience. And so that's what we ask again this day, to help us to grasp um, not just the truth, but the weight of Jesus' teaching in his response to these uh, religious leaders of Israel. And so give us insight and give us a spirit of submission and obedience. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This passage that we want to study this morning touches on this relationship between uh, the church and the state. And this topic of government and politics is not one that we've talked about very much here at ICC. Uh, I don't think anyone would describe um, ICC as a, an activist church or um, a very political church. But I think this issue of government and politics is, is one that's important for us to explore and to understand. And so what I've actually decided to do is, for the next two Sundays, I'm going to sort of camp here a little bit and talk about government and politics, particularly because we're in another election cycle, and you can't turn on the TV without being bombarded with news about Donald Trump, right? And it's just, 
is just endless. And I think for a lot of us as Christians, we really struggle with this issue. You know, what, what should be my attitude toward politics, toward government? Um, so today, I want to focus more narrowly on the teaching of this text in Luke chapter 20. And then next week, I think I'm going to broaden the discussion a bit to be a little more topical to talk about the relationship between our faith and our political involvement. Okay? Um, Philip Riken says, um, if you want to start a good argument, start talking about religion or politics, either one. But if you want to start a war, then bring your religion into your politics. You know? uh, I, I realize that I, I've almost never talked about politics with anyone here at ICC. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Um, I have no idea how most of you align yourself politically. How many registered Democrats we have in our midst? How many registered Republicans? Um, I have no idea how politically active or inactive any of you may be. Um, Are you studying the issues carefully and making informed assessments during this primary season about the Democratic and Republican candidates? Um, Have any of you watched any of the debates that are being televised? Um, Or maybe the truth is, anytime the subject of politics comes up among your friends or at work, uh, the first thing you try to do is to change the subject, you know, because you hate politics. And it really raises this question, should Christians be politically active? And if so, what should that political activism look like? Are Christians called to actively engage, in other words, in the political process? Or does our separation from the world include the world of politics? That really, if you're a devout Christian, you should rise above politics. And you shouldn't really get involved in that fray, in the culture wars, or about power struggles, about who controls Congress, and who's going to be able to claim the next seat in the Supreme Court. Uh, I wonder how many of you even vote regularly. Did you vote in the last presidential election or in the last congressional cycle? Um, Bear with me for a minute because we're going to get back to the text, but I'm going to give you just a really brief history lesson to sort of set a little bit more of a context for what I think is at stake here. Um, For the first 300 years of Christianity... The relationship between the church and the state was a very rocky one. It was characterized mostly by conflict and persecution under Roman rule. Christians in the Roman Empire were viewed as pariahs. They were mistrusted. They were marginalized. They were even put to death. There are some absolutely graphic and gory pictures that date back to the earliest centuries of Christians being put to death by wild animals and by burning, being burnt alive. And these images are horrific of what they used to do to Christians in the first several centuries of the church. Well, all of that changed when Emperor Constantine, Caesar at the time, gave Christianity favored status, which paved the way for Christianity to become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that gave rise, as many of you know, to the Roman Catholic Church, 
And that ushered in an over thousand-year-long era in which the state and the church were basically inseparable. You know, it's kings were coronated by the leader of the church. You know, the church and the secular government went hand in hand. And then the Protestant Reformation arose that challenged the Catholic Church. But even with the rise of Protestantism, that didn't really end this marriage between church and state. You know, it's interesting to me that when I think here, typical debates going on among American Christians and what their hope for America is, I think for a lot of American Christians, they actually long to get back to those days when Christians controlled government. And that's the argument today is we need to take back this country. We need to get our people in Congress, get our man in the White House, get our judges in the Supreme Court. We need to dictate the laws of this land and recover what was lost in this country. But if you really actually look back at that era when the church and the state were basically married with each other, I don't really know if you could make the argument that that was a good thing. Um, In Martin Luther's Germany, the Lutheran church had a very close relationship with the German government. In fact, the Lutheran church was supported by German taxpayer dollars. But the truth is that the Lutheran church in Germany was basically a compromised church that had really lost its way when it became the official church of the land. In fact, by the time you get to World War II and Adolf Hitler, uh, much has been written about the fact that Hitler had the Lutheran pastors in his pocket. And they basically went along with his program in the Third Reich. There was a conspiracy of silence, even in the face of the atrocities that Hitler was committing in the Third Reich. In Geneva, Switzerland, during the days of John Calvin, do you know that church attendance was mandatory? It was the law of the land. You could actually be arrested if you didn't show up to church on Sunday. Um, In fact, women in Geneva were put in jail if their clothes or hairstyle were deemed to be too flashy or immodest by the morality police that basically uh, combed the streets looking for people that were not living according to Christian principles. Okay? I think this is the kind of danger that we can run into when the church becomes too tied with the government. Uh, The close marriage between church and state that went on for over a thousand years would remain largely unchallenged until the age of what was known as the Age of Enlightenment with the rise of secularism in the 1700s. You get these philosophers like Voltaire and John Locke who come in and say, you know what, religion and politics ought to have nothing to do with one another. Government should by necessity be a secular organization with no involvement of the church. And so what you find in Europe anyway is that ever since the French Revolution in the 1700s, 
there was an ever-increasing separation between church and state. And not only that, but you see basically the death of the church in Europe, where Christians become increasingly marginalized to the point where if you were to ask an average European today, they would say Christianity and the church are irrelevant to life in Europe. It has absolutely no place or meaning in our society. Well, if you jump the pond and come here to the United States, what you find is that even in the very earliest days of the formation of our country, there was also this view of separation of church and state. Um, What you find is the ethos of the founding fathers was that there has to be some wall here between state and religion. The First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says what? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, what's interesting in this whole debate about the First Amendment is that in our day today, the First Amendment is usually viewed primarily as a protection for the government against the intrusion of religion. But if you actually go to when the Constitution was written, it was actually the exact reverse. The idea was that they wanted to protect religion from being meddled with by the government. And to understand why that is, you have to understand that the history of America is the history of peoples from all over Europe who fleed to this new country in order to escape religious persecution. And so what they wanted out of America was a wall of separation between government and religion, not because they wanted a secular country that didn't acknowledge God, but so that people could worship without the fear of government interference. And so in our 200-year history in this country, America has gone through some really interesting battles over this issue of separation between church and state. And so the question that I want to pose to you in this pretty extended introduction to the message today is, is America a Christian nation? Is America a Christian nation? Should it be even? And if you think America is a Christian nation, what does that even mean? for a nation to be a Christian nation? Do we want to go back to the days of John Calvin's Geneva, where women are arrested for immodesty? The battle over the answers to these questions is incredibly intense in our day, isn't it? I mean, these are fighting words today. We are battling for the very soul of this country. I recently saw this post in my Facebook news feed, And it said, uh, shocked to see so many places open, people working today that used to be closed on Good Friday. Subtle changes. You have no one to blame but yourself. Why? Because you did not speak up. And then some of the hashtags were silence means you agree, lazy Christians will have much to answer for, and silent Christians equals dead Christians. Now, posts like this, are not rare, right? You can find them all over social media. But they raise some interesting questions. 
What exactly is the spiritual battle that is being waged in America today? Does it involve closing stores on Christian holidays? Prayer in public schools? Keeping in God we trust on our currency? You know, these are some of the battles that are going on in the culture wars, isn't it? Right? And these are the kinds of questions being raised in this ongoing debate about church and politics, faith and government. And these issues of faith and politics were even more radioactive in Jesus' day than they are in America today. The Jews hated the fact that they were ruled by the Romans. There was this radical right-wing element, they were known as the Zealots, who believed that God's will was for them to rise up in armed resistance against their Roman occupiers. They would actually carry daggers under their cloaks. And in opportune times and places like the marketplace, they would actually periodically pull out their knives and stab Romans to death to try to cause terror in the hearts of their occupiers. And they believed that by doing this, they were soldiers of God fighting a just war. Other Jews spiritualized this occupation and were more pacifist in their posture. They believed that God would deliver them, but they didn't think the means was through armed rebellion. Instead, they prayed for a deliverer that God would send. But regardless of what they thought was the solution to their problem, they were all united in their common hatred of their Roman occupation. They felt that as God's people, the Romans, as pagans, as unbelievers, had no right over them, no rightful authority. And therefore, this tax that Caesar imposed on them was an unjust tax. And so these religious leaders tried to leverage the situation against Jesus, hoping to trap him in this taxation issue. Verses 19 to 22 of our passage this morning, the scribes and the chief priests thought to lay hands on him at the very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be silent, sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? As they have done so many times before, they're trying to spring a trap on Jesus by asking what appears to be outwardly an honest and innocent question. Should we pay this tax or shouldn't we? You may ask, well, where exactly is the trap here? The trap looks something like this. The Jews hated this tax. They believed it to be unjust. And so what they felt they were doing by cornering Jesus to address this tax is saying they hoped that Jesus would feel enough pressure to have to say, don't pay this tax. In other words, pander to the Jewish crowds and say, don't pay this tax because it's an unjust tax. But if Jesus did that, then they caught him in his own words. 
And what they would have done was immediately go to the Roman authorities and say, Jesus says, don't pay this tax. And the hope was that the Romans then would kill him for sedition. Instead, Jesus does something that totally catches them off guard. And he says, bring me one of these Roman coins called a denarius that you actually use to pay this tax. Um, it's interesting. The Jews actually believed that you should never, you know, based on the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, uh, you should really never put the imprint of anybody on a coin or something like that. And Caesar's face was on the coin. So the Jews actually never carried around Roman currency. So when he says, produce one of these denarii for me, they, they must have had to go looking around for a while until someone came up with one of these coins. And then they said, whose face is on here? And they had acknowledged Caesar's. And Jesus says, well, if it's Caesar's face on there, then give him his coin back. Give what belongs to Caesar to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. This first part of Jesus' response is render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, Caesar's face is on the coin. It's his money. Submit. Pay the tax. This is really important. What Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to start the kind of political movement that you think I came to start. My kingdom is not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. And so he says, I have come as a king, but I have also come to tell you, submit to this king. And that must have confused the people in that day. But it is striking how consistent the Bible is in commanding us to obey the earthly authorities that are placed over us. Even secular authorities that don't seem to have any clear linkage to God. It says, even those authorities, obey them. The Apostle Paul echoes Jesus' teaching on submission to earthly authorities in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 to 7. It says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he will not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. Not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, 
then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, it sounds like what he's basically saying is there's some things that are really not my business, they're government's business. And you deal with the government for those things. And then there are some things that are my business, they're spiritual business. And for those things, you're accountable to me. But especially in light of this teaching in Romans 13, I think that's not the proper way to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Because the truth is that everything is under God's dominion. And so even submission to earthly governments flows from our submission to God. In other words, what Jesus is essentially saying is, submit to me in everything. And as, a, as an expression of your submission to me, what I want you to do is submit to the earthly authorities that are over you. That's exactly Paul's point in Romans 13, isn't it? Why do you obey the government? Because it's rooted in the truth that God is the one that ultimately is in control of everything. That government could not exist unless God allowed it to exist. Now you got to understand that Paul is saying this at a time when the emperor was Nero. And Nero was no friend to the church. In fact, he persecuted and killed Christians. Yet the message to Christians is clear even under the rule of a horrible ruler like Nero. Even through such imperfect leaders like these secular government officials or Caesars, God can still accomplish his will in his world and in your life. In other words, paying our taxes is only one example of the more comprehensive command for Christians to obey the authorities that are over them. The passages in Scripture are endless that echo this theme. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Saying just in every institution, in every setting where there's some authority over you, the general posture of the Christian ought to be submission. Peter goes on in chapter 2, verse 18 to 19. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is what? Conscious of God. This is rather staggering. Peter even commands slaves to obey their earthly masters. And he says, not just the good Christian ones who treat you right, but even the cruel ones that are inhumane to you, even submit to them. Now, I hope that there is at least a part of you that is really squirming in thinking about the implications of these commandments. Because If you're not, I don't think you're receiving the full weight of this teaching of submission. 
I don't think this fits into the American psyche very well, does it? In fact, when we think of words like submission, we think of submission like a dirty word. It smacks of cults and other movements that try to control people. It's a dirty word. And the truth is, we find so many loopholes to avoid obedience and submission, don't we? There are so many good reasons, seemingly legitimate reasons, not to submit. I'll submit to the church leaders when they've proven their worth to be followed. I'd be a lot more open to respecting my husband if he was just a little bit respectable, right? But Scripture is uncomfortably relentless in commanding submission to all authorities with hardly any qualifications. Why should a Christian slave respect and obey even a harsh master? Well, as Peter points out in verse 19, that submission is ultimately a submission to God so that God can accomplish his purposes, even in that difficult circumstance. And it makes more sense when you look at his instruction to wives. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. You see, this is the pattern that the Bible seems to be laying out. Is when you're in a bad situation, when you feel victimized by the authorities over you, people who have some level of control over your life, there is this incredible temptation to see everything through the lens of injustice. I'm not being treated right here. This is not fair. This is not right. And all we can think about typically in that situation is either escaping that situation or fixing it through our own means. Or at least demanding that God fix it for us ASAP. But this is what the Bible suggests in this teaching on submission. God often accomplishes his greatest work in our lives through our quiet submission and trust in God's control, even in the face of injustice and abuse. In other words, where our natural instinct is fight or flight, fix this messed up situation or get away from it. What the pattern in Scripture seems to be is you need patience and perseverance and faith and learn that often, instead of immediately thinking about running away or trying to fix things by your own abilities, maybe there is a deeper purpose here that God is trying to accomplish by your quiet submission to the situation that you face. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In other words, Peter tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he not only died to save us from our sins, but also to set an example of the kind of surrendered life that we are called to mirror in our own lives. And I want to tell you, this 
teaching is not easy for any of us to accept, is it? Nero tried to destroy the church. It's interesting if you read the histories on it. It seems like Nero was actually deranged, that he suffered from some kind of mental illness. And the theory is that he actually decided to burn Rome himself out of some wacky entertainment. And then he blamed the Christians, saying the Christians burned the city. And he used that as an excuse to put thousands of Christians to death. Um, In fact, the two people I've been quoting the most in this message, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, that have been talking repeatedly about this submission theme, remember Nero was the emperor at that time? Nero actually killed Peter and killed Paul. He is the emperor that put both of those apostles to death. And yet, rather than responding in armed revolt, the truth is that these Christians faced their death with submission and with bravery, praising God and witnessing to the crowds that came to watch their death for entertainment purposes. And through that quiet submission and through their martyrdom, the church exploded in those first several centuries. In other words, in his own mysterious ways, God often uses what appears to be in the eyes of the world as weakness, strength to accomplish his greatest work. I want to let that truth settle in your soul a little bit here. Because I suspect that even here, there are some of you that are really squirming in the situations that you face in life. Maybe there, are th- there is an authority over you that you just feel like you have to get out from under. Or some situation that you think is unjust. Or whatever it is that you feel intolerable. Maybe you're in a bad marriage with a deadbeat husband. And you say, I can't take this anymore. And everyone around you is counseling, you got to get out of this marriage. This is the natural instinct of the human soul. A self-preservation. Fight or flight. Protect myself. And yet when we look at the teachings of Christ and his followers... The challenge to us is radically different. No authority exists on this earth that God has not put in place. And so therefore, the general stance of the Christian is of surrender and submission, not only just to God, but even earthly authorities, trusting that even when there's situations where there is abuse or injustice, the trust is that God is even greater than that. And even in the midst of the pain that I'm asking to endure, he can still accomplish some of his greatest work in my life. Now, that's not the end of the story on this issue. Um, Can the Bible's teaching on faith and politics be reduced entirely to be a good citizen and submit to authority? Is there never a time, in other words, when we ought to change existing circumstances or even act 
with civil disobedience. A huge issue that exemplifies this is the abortion issue, right, in America. Roe Roe v. Wade, 1973, made abortion legal in this country. And this has really torn the church, where some people say that's the law of the land, and we have to submit to that and be obedient, whereas other Christians have flatly gone out militant so that they're bombing abortion clinics and shooting abortion doctors, right, and saying, listen, it's, what's at stake here is the death of countless unborn babies that warrants the violence that we're going to exact on people that are going to perform these abortions. Um, this is where things do get tricky. And the answer is a little more complex. Because our submission to others flows out of our submission to the higher authority of God, There are times when we cannot obey earthly authorities. Probably the most notable example in the New Testament is when the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel in the temple courts. And they were ordered to stand before the Sanhedrin, which was in those days like the Jewish parliament. And in Acts chapter 5, Verse 27 to 29, it says, Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. In other words, when earthly authorities try to force us to disobey God's authority, then we must obey God rather than men. And so there may be times in our lives when we have to resist those who have authority over us. But these, I would argue, in the whole witness of Scripture, ought to be extraordinarily rare circumstances. When somebody is putting us in the untenable situation of having to disobey God. But there are examples of this kind of civil disobedience throughout the history of the church that God has also used for his glory. And so what I want you to do as I wrap up my message and close here is to recognize the answer to try to solve the riddle of faith and politics, church and state, is not a simplistic one. It's a very complicated one that requires a lot of wisdom. And in next week's sermon, I want to try to unpack that a little more, particularly in this political realm, and see what does it mean for us to be citizens in America and also followers of Jesus Christ. But what I want to really bring the focus to in this message as I close here is to really say that this render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar is part of a much broader teaching in Scripture that speaks of submission and says, you know what? You're going to face a lot of situations in your life that you're not going to like. And there are going to be so many arguments that say, this can't be God's will. And I've got to fix this problem. And I've got to get away from this. And before you jump to that conclusion, I think 
the overwhelming teaching of Scripture here is to say, maybe you need to just pause for a moment here. Say, maybe there's a different perspective that God wants to offer you here. And maybe the goal is not to escape, but to surrender under that circumstance and realize that God could have a greater purpose for why he's asking you to endure. Let's pray. This uh, teaching on submission, I think, is a really difficult one. In those days of Jesus, I think it was really unthinkable that the true Messiah would actually tell the subjects of his kingdom to obey Caesar. It just, that would make no sense to the Jews of his day. When the Messiah comes, he's going to conquer Caesar. He's going to overcome all the earthly authorities. And he's going to make everything right. He's going to help us. He's going to fix all of our problems. He's going to rescue us. He's going to deliver us. But when Jesus came, he said, my kingdom doesn't work that way. I am the conquering king. I am the ruling Lord. But in my rule over my kingdom, what I'm commanding you to do is to submit to the authorities that are on this earth. Because none of those authorities could exist unless I allowed them to. And there's so many temptations to find loopholes to get out of this command. But it takes faith that God alone can give us to endure some of the things that God may ask us to endure. Now, as I said, there are limits to the submission. When it gets to the place where people are trying to coerce us to do something that's clearly in violation of God's command, then we cannot obey. But the truth is, most of our disobedience doesn't fall under that category, does it? Most of our disobedience falls more, I think, in the camp of self-preservation. I just don't like this situation. I don't like this person that I feel I'm beholden to. So I don't feel like listening to this person. I think I know better than that person. And I'm going to do what I think is right. Christ says, you know, an expression of your following me is to follow the earthly leaders that I've placed over you. And that is not an easy teaching. Can I ask, what are the situations that you may be trying to get out from under in your life? Like I said, maybe it's a bad marriage. Maybe it's a toxic work situation. Maybe it's a really messy family situation. I don't know. I don't know what it is that you feel like is just something that has to be solved by either fight or flight. And can I just invite you to take a pause and wrestle with God in light of this teaching? And say, you know, Lord, uh, maybe there's something greater here that you're trying to do in my life. And maybe there's something here that um, you're inviting me to surrender to that is going to be really painful and not at all what I want, 
Um, but still, this is your will. I think even as we get into next week's sermon and think about what it means to be good citizens as Americans, we're going to see that much of it is tied up with this idea of submission, what it means to really honor and obey the earthly authorities that were over us. But whether you apply it to this realm of government and politics or maybe a more personal situation that you're facing, what I want to invite you to do right now is just to come before the Lord in prayer and say, God, my heart feels restless because there are certain things that I'm trying to get out from under right now. And, you know, um, the truth is I'm not a very good follower in almost any circumstance. I tend to complain and criticize my leaders, my boss, people that have expressed any level of control over me. I tend to gripe about and, and find a lot of reasons for why I don't have to follow them. Maybe what God is inviting you to do is saying, you know, help me to believe that you are in control even in this situation, that you are even sovereign over even this. Give me the faith to trust that I can surrender that level of control and surrender to you. So would you just pray that for a few minutes as uh, our worship team will in just a little bit come lead us in a time of response in closing songs. 